the study of theology is the study of the word or the idea or the concept or the logic of God himself. Took me four years to read the Bible. I reckon I understand a great deal of it. Wasn't what I expected in some places. So I'm sad that we're not on the same page eschatologically. I wish Sam Storms and I were on the same page. So you believe in these kind of things? Let's just say I want to believe. Well, I know where he was converted. He was converted on the toilet. That, I, I like that one. We're you gonna would. To, you could say he was saying I was in the dumps, whatever. Just, well, which stall what? was he in? First John, second John, no, 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 third no, no, John. Wait, wait, wait. Let's let be careful here. He had bowel problems. He struggled with constipation. The argument among certain psychologists, he finally experienced relief with constipation. And in that moment of relief and deliverance, he suddenly... I wasn't getting that graphic. <laughs> he suddenly, you know, had this breakthrough discovery. And all of his fetid guilt, he released. Should we start now? Yeah. yeah. Okay, welcome, one and all, Theology Unplugged. Today, we may or may not get to a point at which the name Peter Popoff is mentioned. Just stay tuned for that. <laughs> if it is mentioned, it will be Sam who brings him up. <laughs> right? I thought he was your hero. Well, I think you need to introduce every time. That's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are going to talk about the selling of indulgences, and he's selling Miracle Spring Water, so there is a connection. There you go. So who's here with us? We've got Tim. Yes, I'm here. I'm glad to join us. You introduced me since I introduced you. And then you. we've got Michael Patton with us. Yeah. And you introduce yourself. because Sam Storms, you. Bridgeway Church. All right. Hi, I'm Clint Roberts. Now, we're talking about Luther today. Yeah. Luther. Martin Luther. And I get students in my classes who, if I mention Martin Luther, they say, oh, I love the that uh, I have a dream speech. That, that's really one of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, these days, a lot of people... Uh, and these are university students, <laughs> yeah, that's right? right. <laughs> that's a scary thought. Oh, yeah. I had one presenting a thing the other day. Uh, I make them talk. I mean, I make them do something. So they were, they were talking. They said, they kept getting to the word theologian. They were talking about Aquinas. Mm -hmm. And every time they would say, and he was a theo theologian. Theo theo <laughs> I mean, five or six times. And I would always say theologian. So, you know, you, you cannot take anything for granted. So... You we won't. You, we won't. As we talk about Luther, I mean, we're going and and I think it'd be good to like not to bring down the significance of Martin Luther King Jr. in any way, shape, or form. But to I think it's a very accurate statement that Martin Luther has had exponential more influence on the planet than Martin Luther King Jr. Well, Martin Luther King was named after Martin yeah. Luther, obviously. Yeah. I mean, unless or, so. or it's a wild coincidence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well played. I don't think so, but we, we are continuing our series where we are uh, in celebration and, uh, uh, you know, great excitement here with Theology Unplugged members because this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, mm -hmm. or at least the date that we're building up to with Martin Luther and the nailing of the 95 Thesis uh, on what was it, October 31st, uh, 1517. Mm -hmm. And so we left last time uh, as we built all around talking about guys. We were talking about the things that built up to the Reformation. We were talking about events, the reason for it. I think that that was very important. But now we're going to focus on this man that, that, as Tim said, is 
exponentially more influence than just about any other character that we can think of for the last 2,000 years. I mean, literally. Outside of Jesus. Yeah, outside of Jesus. I mean, the, the one of the high points of history, if you really understand history and the turns of history, this is it, what we're getting to. And so we want to talk about this man and understand who he was, characteristics, building up life, and, and getting to that point where he nailed nails that 95 thesis on October 31st. Mm-hmm. So, let's begin. I mean, his character. Let, let's let's talk about he, he who he was. He was a character. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> I mean, in, in the truest sense of the term. Yeah, he was, uh, what, born in uh, 1483, and um, his intentions were to go to law school. Uh, his father uh, pushed him in that particular direction. Um, the... Uh, the story, and again, I say the story with a little bit of emphasis because it's amazing more and more modern historians are questioning the historicity of this particular event. Hmm. But the story is that in July of 1505, uh, he was caught in the midst of a thunderstorm and uh, was terrified and frightened um, and called out to St. Anne and said, if you will deliver me from this, I'll become a monk. Well, he was delivered, and so um, he honored his pledge, and several weeks later entered into a an Augustinian monastery and began his journey as a Roman Catholic monk. Do you think that you know he it, it, it already kind of? I mean, you don't make an obligation like that, you know, like say if if uh, you know you let me do that, make it through, then I'll become um, you know a politician or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever else. But he he says a monk specifically. Do you think there was something in him that was already leaning in that direction? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, he had. Um, he had gone through some family tragedies. Two of his brothers died in the Black Death in the mm-hmm. bubonic plague. Huh. He had a close friend that had died just prior to this event. Uh, maybe he was thinking about eternal matters and uh, you know life and death and his relationship with God. But I don't know that anybody has been able to verify that. Yeah. Well, well if lightning hit really <clears throat> did hit close enough to put him on his rear end, I mean that. Yeah. I mean, how many guy, how many, how many people in their in their weekend drunken stupor <clears throat> make promises, <laughs> dramatic right. promises to God about things? Well, he honored it, and that's the main thing, you know. And he he becomes a monk. He gets in the monastery, Augustinian monk. Which what, what, do y'all know the characteristics of Augustinian monks compared to other monks of the time? Why he might have chosen that? I'm sorry to get into the psyche of Martin Luther, but I'm just really interested in this because I know I think there's so much bubbly character that you can see everywhere, and then I'm trying to place some of these things. I think one thing that is certain is that him becoming a monk was great cost to his family. So it's not a question of just like, man, I'm trying to decide what my occupation should be and, you know, my family would be good. But the transition from a lawyer to a monk meant that he was turning his back on the financial welfare of his family. And his family was not too pleased. No, no. his dad was very upset. Yeah. yeah. Is it safe? To, is it worth saying for anybody who uh, listens to this that, that it, for the medieval-minded village you know, churchgoer, that the monastery was like considered the the, high, the without a doubt the highest super Calling. holy road. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, maybe today we think of it as bizarre or yeah. we don't even know anything about maybe it. Maybe we say, if you save me, I'll become a missionary or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Mike, you were saying about Luther's character. There's one thing that is clearly evident. Now, whether this was true of him prior to this uh, life-changing event or not, you would think it would have to be. He had a hypersensitive conscience. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was terrified of hell terrified of God. He didn't love God. In fact, he often does say he hated the God of righteousness because he felt that nothing that he did, and he tried everything to the nth degree could possibly satisfy God, or uh, he, he just despaired of attaining any kind of holiness that could somehow atone for his own sins. He committed himself in the, monast- in the, in the monastery to every menial task, cleaning toilets, scrubbing floors, serving the poor, um, he uh, he begged in the streets, um, constantly going to his confessor Stalpitz, mm. and uh, a man by the name of Stalpitz. And Stalpitz finally got so tired of Luther's obsession with his own sins. He said, "Look, stop coming. Don't come back until you've committed some really substantial <laughs> sins that make this worthwhile." So the just the most menial little transgressions were driving Luther up a wall. Give me something to work with. I know. Right. I so I have to say it. I said this in a sermon recently. Stop it! Finally said, "Stop, Stop it!" it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can, can we edit that? Ch- out? Church history uh, joke. Uh, but I, I, th- I do think that that Luther, before this uh, Reformation experience of his own life, I do think that his conviction of his sin is something that should be um, admired by many of, of how seriously he took his sin before a holy God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, he was definitely um, conscious in a perhaps an excessive and inordinate way uh, you know, uh, the interesting his susceptibility thing is, to judgment. and I don't mean to say anything crazy about this because I, I don't have anything against what I'm getting ready to say. Now I've built it up too much. Yeah, so yeah, we can't let, wait. Let me, no, let me just slip. No, I'm, no, I'm just going to slip it in later on. Let's talk about something <laughs> well, else. Well, <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll say it. Listen, if, if he were uh, uh, his hypersensitive conscience, he probably would have been on some type of medication that would have calmed this stuff down. Uh, today, which is basically saying this, basically saying that God used, it, because what we're going to move to, and that, that this was necessary, this was a necessary part of his history, a necessary part of his personality, was to, was to be in this state, was to be in this mental state that we would probably say, and I would probably tell him if he were living today and going through this, listen, let's, let's, we got to move beyond this because there's something else the matter with you, right? I mean, I, I, w- I would stop and I would say, listen, it's no longer the theology because Stalpitz, uh, Johann Stalpitz, right? He, he was a good guy. Yeah. And, I mean, he never did convert over the Reformation, never did become a Protestant, but he was probably the best guy Luther could have been with and under and very providential that he was placed with him. But the, he, he's saying there's there's something else going on, and that's well, the reason why he calls, calls Luther to, let's go do something else. Let's place you, let, let's move you from this environment to a whole new environment, which is teaching give him something to do yeah, and I began to teach theology yeah and then what happened just kind of let's move this historically down the road a little bit um luther suddenly was confronted with a roman catholic church and in particular a papacy that was the very antithesis of what he himself aspired to be 
I mean, for a, a man with a hypersensitive conscience who is obsessing over the most menial of sins, and he travels to Rome, and he sees the uh, immorality and the greed, the avarice, the just the the the, uh, the flippant way in which uh, the papacy took the things of God's word, and that just aggravated uh, his own sense of uh, failure and shortcoming, and also began to you know, awaken him to the to the failures of the church and its inability to answer the cry of his conscience. Basically, his conscience was crying out, I want peace. Mm. I want a sense mm. of cleansing. I want to be able to, my soul can be at rest in my relationship with God. Went to Rome hoping to find it, found just the opposite. Mm-hmm. And, and you got to understand too, even though uh, his, his mentor this time was a good guy, he still wasn't finding it in the theology that was being taught by the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church... Had and, and you know I, I like to call it at this time the institutionalized church rather yeah. than just the Catholic Church because we're becoming the Roman Catholic Church at this point. The institutionalized church of the day was what it it probably would have driven you crazy. I mean to, to think about those things if you were to take it to the nth degree, you would be sitting there thinking about the small things that you have done if you really believed it. And it seems to be that he was a he was a very committed to the church of the day. Mm -hmm. And he was not finding peace, not only in himself, not only in, uh, you know, his own sins, not only in the things that he was seeing, but in the theology that he knew and was taught. Mm -hmm. So Luther goes to Rome in uh, 1510, 1511. And I love this quote. I wrote it down um, uh, in Bard Thompson's book on the Reformation. This is Luther talking about his trip to Rome. He said, quote, some people took money to Rome and brought back indulgences. I, like a fool, carried onions there and brought back garlic. And his point was, um, I took my despair to Rome, hoping to be relieved of it, and it just got worse. <laughs> it went from onions to garlic. Mm. So, you know, he, he he went through all of the traditional rituals. He scaled the, the 28 steps of the Scala Santa, the supposedly the steps on which Jesus stood before Pilate and was condemned. Uh, saying all the prayers along the way. And he's and, going to see the relics, right? Yeah, vis- visiting all the holy sites. And he finally just came to... Now, it's interesting, just throw this in. So, there used to be a tradition about Luther that as he was scaling these steps, bending over and kissing the places where the blood of Christ was supposedly to have dropped and spilled, that he suddenly came to uh, the conclusion, well, this is dumb. I can't. I can't get saved by doing this. I can only be saved by faith, and that he was converted on those steps. That has been largely debunked by subsequent uh, scholars. We don't even know when Luther was converted. Most think now that it was at some point as he was teaching the Book of Romans. Well, I know where he was converted. He was converted on the toilet. Oh yeah, well, that, I like that one because now you're, we're going to have to explain that a little bit. You would like that one, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well, for one thing, I mean, you could say he was saying I was in the dumps, whatever. Uh, you know, I was just down. I, I, it just, well, which stall what? was he in? First John, Second John? No, 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 Third no. Wait a minute. Revelation. Hang with me yeah, because yeah, yeah. because recently it has been in the last ten years, and, and I could show you guys pictures of the excavated. Um, restroom <laughs> of Luther, and it was a very high tech 
um, restroom. It was one of the most high-tech restrooms. You, I mean, you understand, you, they didn't have vents of the day. You know, you turn on the fan, you go in there. And, let's let's be careful here. We're, <laughs> no, 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 no. Because Luther, light a match! <laughs> and, and so Luther had, he had bowel problems. He struggled with constipation. That, yeah. that's, a, that's an established fact. And the argument to, to kind of bring this rather unpleasant topic to a conclusion that Michael uh, opened up for us. It's my favorite part. Yes. The argument among certain psychologists um, as they go back and look at Luther is that he finally experienced relief from his uh, problems with constipation. And in that moment of relief and deliverance, he suddenly... I wasn't getting that graphic. <laughs> he suddenly um, um, you know, had this breakthrough discovery um, and uh, all of his fetid guilt, he released yes, every word and, that's and, being used and, here. And yeah. came to uh, saving faith in Jesus. Okay, now, now, Book of Romans. And that's, yeah, so, but he Was first, he reading Romans while he was seated? I, I, that's saying? the way I picture ah, it. I see. But Up on the mercy taught, seat. He first taught the Book of Psalms, and then right. the Book of Romans was the second book he taught his students through. Okay, and so in the Book of Romans, I mean, he, he was told by... His his mentor go and teach go and study the New Testament go I mean he learned Greek he knew he knew Greek he knew Hebrew he was a well studied yeah. scholar he wasn't just somebody who was emotional and just beating himself mm-hmm. all the time I mean outside of the outside of the confessional I mean he's studying and, and he is sent to study and not not only does he study but if you look at his life and this little time period that he goes through where he, he becomes a monk and now he's teaching the book of Romans and then later on as we'll see he's translating the Bible the guy was brilliant oh, yeah. I mean well, he, he, I, I he learned this stuff so incredibly fast I think that's a hallmark of a lot of the reformers that God used in this time when you look at Calvin you look at Bootser but then I think also uh, John Knox they've they've recently uh, found his um, his toilet uh, no they found his Bible that he was using and uh, and the Bible that they found was was half Latin and half Hebrew. And so, you know, there are these people who I think, if we think of them today, we would think that they're the most missional people around and recognize that what's very interesting is that these are very missional people who are really making a huge impact, but they're big time people of the word of God. You know? So so let's get back into yeah. Luther's character. What okay. is feeling? Yeah. Uh, spiritually. Okay, feeling spiritually. <laughs> he, he looked, after his conversion, he wrote about his state of mind prior to it. Here's a couple of quotes. Quote, I was a good monk and kept my rules so strictly that I venture to say that if ever, if ever a monk could get to heaven by monkery, I would have gotten there. Uh, he talks about vigils, prayers, readings, works. And then he says, after all of these of the most difficult kind, with which as a monk I afflicted myself almost to death, yet the doubt was left in my mind, and I thought, who knows whether these things are pleasing to God. Mm-hmm. That's where he constantly lived, in this doubt about whether he could ever be uh, acceptable and reconciled to God. Mm-hmm. Do you think people in our time really have, do you think they can really connect with a person who thinks like that from that time period? And we tell the story of Luther and we talk about mm-hmm. him feeling so guilty and that, you know, he's under wrath, he can't satisfy it. I just want, and I'm talking about Christians now, mm-hmm. and forget about the outside world, I just mean church-going people. Do you think they can really comprehend a guy who thinks that way? I, I think many, I mean, I just a personal story, I, I 
probably didn't feel as deeply as Luther, but that was when I was in college, what really brought me to Jesus was that I just felt a non-ending weight of my sin and I just didn't know. I mean, it's kind of like the Pilgrim's Progress Christian who has this weight on him that he doesn't know how to get rid of the burden, you know? Now, I don't know if, I think Luther probably took it to a level that I do think there probably are people around that do feel that, but I think also we have such a culture where we can uh, numb ourselves out through so many avenues of Netflix or whatever that I think so many times we fight to stay there. Uh, but I do think, I mean, I think that's the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. And so I do think people feel that, but maybe not to the monkery of not having yeah. access to Netflix, you know? I, I, I agree. I as a pastor, I see a lot, quite frequently uh, people who probably already are saved. They're truly born again. They have a hypersensitive conscience. And every failure, every lustful thought, every greedy act, as far as they're concerned, has put them on the outs again. And they've got a God must be really furious with me now. Um, but Luther, let's... Um, Let's come to his conversion. Yeah. Probably in about 1516, early 1517. So he wasn't, by his own testimony, born again until probably at most a year out from his posting of the 95 Theses. Mm -hmm. Here's what he said. He said, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Hmm. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words in Romans 1:17, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Hmm. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Hmm. The righteousness of God. That was the, the wording. And, and he used to hate that passage. Until the just kinda... shall live by faith. Yeah, he yeah. thought righteousness of God meant the righteousness with which God will judge us. Yeah. And uh, the righteousness that God requires of us when, in fact, he came to see that it's the righteousness that God himself provides through the saving work of Christ. And isn't it interesting that, I mean, we, we often talk about this as, as a very important issue, but today it's become almost secondary that it's not quite as important as it used to be. But in the Reformation, and as he talks about this, and as he talks about the righteousness of God, he, he's talking about the imputation of the Christ's righteousness to us, which gave him release of his his burden, uh, the, mm -hmm. the burden that was on his back. And that is, that is what we talk about often, the imputation of Christ's righteousness is the, is the means by which we are made right before God, the means by which we, we can come into um, God's uh, kingdom. Mm -hmm. And here's Luther. How important is this? I mean, yeah. the Reformation, imputation. And this is part of the reason why the rest of his his life this was a big subject this was a big deal the Absolutely. imputation of yeah. god so so can we assume i'm asking this question can we assume that if someone like luther <clears throat> um who was responsible for leading and pastoring the people in his particular district can we assume that his mindset was predominantly the mindset of most people at that particular time were they were they generally speaking of the same 
my, not saying that they were, you know, had as hypersensitive a conscience as Luther did, but were they all struggling with doubt about whether their lives were acceptable to God, whether they were truly saved? Was it really the issue of the lack of assurance of their eternal destiny that made Germany ripe for somebody like Luther who came along and started preaching the true biblical gospel? I think, well, I think what happens afterwards shows that, yes, they were. You know, I mean, that that it was dry kindling, and Luther brought a flame of an idea to that dry wood. And so I think that, that the fruit of the Reformation shows that people were ready to— uh, I think people had not been experiencing freedom by what had been proclaimed to them that would set them free. Instead, it felt like bondage. And Luther was a monk who had just been set free by the righteousness of Christ instead of his own righteousness. And again, this goes back to all the ingredients from the last, you know, uh, the the rise of the institutional church that, that became so burdensome for people and provided this opportunity for the gospel. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to theologically speculate here, but I often do think, what, what is the movement here that God's making? You know, I mean, the big picture movement, because here's God allowing people to come to this point. And obviously, we're not saying up until Luther had this revelation and that, that people, you know, got this message, nobody was saved. You know, uh, people are saved, you know, uh, whenever they turn to Christ and they say, have mercy upon me, the sinner. But oftentimes they don't know they are. And that burden stays on their back, and they 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 become believers, but they don't. Michael, what you just said is so crucial. We we need to make this clear. They don't know they are, and here's the point: the late medieval Roman Catholic Church wanted it that way. Mm-hmm. The whole system was designed to keep people guessing, mm-hmm. and if you're guessing, you're always coming back for more. Mm-hmm. That's what kept them continuing to contribute, continuing to turn to the sacraments. It, it, for people to finally be able to to stop and say, oh, I, I, I'm saved, I'm a child of God, I've been totally and forever forgiven of my sins, that would have severed the dependency of the individual believer on the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church, which they said is absolutely essential for the dispensing of saving grace. Mm-hmm. So it was this it was this lack of peace and assurance that I think the late medieval church deliberately um, cultivated well, in well, order to keep people dependent upon what they said they could alone dispense. Yeah, tether them to the church and make sure that the money keeps coming in, that, that people keep coming back to you to hear what the Word of God says. It was and, just the way the system was at the time. And it was tight and it was structured and the walls built everywhere. And you don't just come in and say... I mean, I, 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 I'm trying to look at the institutionalized church of the day, and I'm not thinking that each one of them is thinking this to themselves. You know, we've got this. Let's keep this. Let's keep people under the burden. Well, we've got wrong theology. We know it, but let's not, you know, tell anybody. It's that the system for so long had just slowly just built and built and built, and it's kind of like here's God's movement, and and it's it causes us to look at it in such a such a dramatic way. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we look at it and we see this turn and we see what it could be. We see what it can become. We see how it can be corrupted and we see it get corrupted to such a terrible degree as we talked about last time in the popes and the, the, the craziness that's going on. And now this drastic 
this drastic change, this drastic movement of God causes us to, I think, celebrate it more, celebrate the gospel more. Right. And again, you know, it's interesting, and we'll get into this in our next uh, our next episode. It sounds like a dramatic presentation. Man. Next time, time on next Theology week's ep- Scenes from next week's episode. Will Luther um, be saved? Will Luther, the church split? Luther had no intentions of breaking with the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. He, it wasn't his design to turn his back on the institution of the church. His design was to reform it. But he wouldn't have even known what that meant. Yeah, and, and again, yeah. but here's the here's the revolutionary idea: um, is that up until this point, if you ask any uh, person with a, a modicum of knowledge about Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church, and if you had asked them how does one get in right relationship with God, they would have pointed you to the sacramental system. They would have pointed you to the priest. They would have po- pointed you to penance and to baptism and all of the uh, things involved there. And what basically what Luther was saying, although he didn't say it this way, but in effect what he was saying is, no, you want to get right with God? You don't look to your left, don't look to your right, don't look to a priest, look upward to Jesus Christ and cry out for his mercy and faith for what he's done for you. And you are instantly and forever justified and made right in the sight of God. That was the revolutionary yeah. um, uh thing that that occurred that really sparked uh, what we call the Protestant Reformation. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying Theology Unplugged, let me tell you about some of the other resources we have available. Visit us online at credohouse.org and browse over 2,000 articles on everything from the Crusades to gay marriage. Sign up for email updates and get the latest news, event announcements, and special deals before anyone else. Connect with us on social media. Just search Credo House on Twitter and Facebook. And you can always email us at theologyunplugged at credohouse.org. We want you to be part of the Credo community. Please partner with us in making theology accessible and pushing back the intellectual attack on Christianity. Thank you.